Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. Hello, I'm Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. In each one of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living, dynamic, always changing landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems. How do we install the language of our current level of operational excellence, even if we're not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be? When we make that level concrete and specific through visual devices, through these physical solutions, we can literally see how we think, and predict how that thinking will function. We are building performance into the workplace. We've captured it. And why do we bother? Well, three main reasons. The first, bottom line benefit. Maybe that's the second. The second is bottom line benefit. The first is splendid cultural alignment, a spirited and engaged workforce on all levels. And the third is maybe the first, which is we enjoy ourselves along the way. We come to work and we enjoy ourselves. And yes, another way of saying that is we become heroes at work. We want our lives to be excellent. We want our lives to be contributing. We want our lives to be meaningful. And visuality paves the way in really ways that I have found over the last 35 years extraordinary, unexpected, unexpected unexpected, unplanned. All I did was follow along, understand that motion was the lever, understand that we were attacking information deficits, understand that, it took me a while for this next one, that in using visual devices, we were actually making a physical language that was embedded in the hospital, embedded in the office, embedded in the factory, embedded in the open pit mind. And people began to change. They began to own They began to excel. They began to come into themselves in a way that was very full, very compelling, very authentic. It's been extraordinary to see this happen. What a surprise. Who knew? I didn't know. I just followed my nose because I loved the fragrance. I just loved this work. I didn't know it was going to take me 35 years to figure it all out. With another 35 to go, I mean, honestly... That's when you know you're in a field that you love. It keeps teaching you. And so it has been with workplace visuality and all of its permutations. The permutations I call the 10-doorway model. So it just spreads in a very structured, systematic way. But nevertheless, once it grabs a hole, it becomes rhapsodic. It's amazing, amazing. We're going to continue with our series of The Hero Within, Last time we met, we kind of mapped out in some detail the journey of the I, this interplay between need to know, need to share. The show before that was about the power of the I, the power of the individual, the power of the individual will. 
And the first show in this series, The Hero Within, was about the fact that we come to work with a great expectations, great expectations. We referred to David Copperfield, the other book by Charles Dickens. He also wrote Great Expectations with David on the beach, the first two pages of the book, wondering in his young life what he would be. Will I be the hero of my own life, he asked. His question is our question, and it is a question for companies as well. It is a a question for us as parents. Will we be heroic? Will we be the heroes of our family? Will, Will we teach our children? Will we cultivate heroes in our children? Not to put them in harm's way, but to put them on a path of fullness and completion. It's a mighty, mighty outcome and very, very available. So I think you just have to kind of get the beliefs and the values right. And you have to have a protocol. You have to have a pathway that supports this um, transformation. Maybe you would even call it a shift the shifting of the identity to get closer and closer to the promise. That's the world that I live in, and that's the world that I uh, that I present to my clients when they want that. They want the financial benefits. I told you about Stuart Bellamy, the amazing work that he did through this model. Thirty thousand minutes. 30,000 minutes made up of five minutes every hour in a workplace that doesn't speak, and we are using up 30,000 minutes across 200 people. It becomes very, very financially um, impactful. And, you know, I was thinking about this today. I went to a factory. Um, it was a, It is a printing, it's a packaging pr- a factory where they, make packaging with uh, film, printed film, and uh, then laminate, and then uh, they turn it into packages for food. And it was a, it's, a, it's a factory floor that is really dominated by machines and also populated by employees who are experts, experts at the machine, at the adjustments, at smelling, hearing, when something's going wrong, anticipation, and very a really high level of expertise. And I was thinking about our last show when I said, you know, this is the doorway, the, the eye-driven aspect of workplace visuality, at least as I do it, as it has taught me to do. Um, how that would work in that environment and and the 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 client or potential client uh, kind of asked me, "What do you think?" And I have to say, I said to him, "You know, um, you have experts here, and they're going to give you a big pushback on eye driven because they're already eye driven. They're just not eye driven in a way that shares their knowledge." So when you think about this and shares it visually, when you think about extracting or surfacing this level of expertise so the workplace speaks, proceed with some caution because they may not, they may look like they're resisting, 
but they are really skeptical because they're so good at what they do. What more do you want from me? This is an interesting discussion. We are not going to go exactly down that rabbit hole today, but what we are going to look at is against the backdrop of this powerful will that we have that the company and the individual wants to release so they can come to know themselves and so that the company can receive the benefit of those contributions that come out of that power, out of those insights and that creativity. We have to take into consideration the wide swath of humanity that will be Um, impacted by that or be expected to play, expected to participate. Do we really have to like all the people all the time? Do we really have to expect that they're all going to contribute? Are we surprised if some people are not cooperating with our very important improvement agenda? Why can't we just make them? Why can't we just force them? <sighs> or um, in today's PC zealous world, why can't we show respect for the individual and then get them to do what we want? <laughs> uh, even when some of them are clearly indifferent and others are actually actively pushing back. So we're going to take on this tricky scenario, and I want to do it through the framework of the whole discussion of hero within, power of the eye, journey of the eye, growth, transformation, and let's just let reality smack us in the face. Let's get off of our high horse, and let's look at this. Let's keep an eye on the main event, which is improvement is going to have a strong impact positive impact on the bottom line and an aligned culture is going to help out as well how the heck are you going to do that Hmm? how the heck are you going to do that in this funny way I've been describing of encouraging people to be themselves without fear of penalty so let's begin this in visual thinking and in a visual conversion we deliberately look for ways to make each individual pretty singular in thought and action. We disconnect them from the idea of teams so that they don't have to come to a consensus before they make their first visual device. You don't have to have agreement. You want people to be pretty singular and independent in their improvement, thinking in their improvement doing. We will spend one or two or five shows on How do you deal with, in practical terms, a three-shift or four-shift or five-shift workforce scenario where people are using common areas or what happens when they start actually moving freely, being cross-trained, moving freely across departments? How do you get an improvement landscape improved when there's no stability in the people who are supposed to do the improving of it, do we have to resort to a Kaizen Blitz? Well, we're going to use a Blitz a little bit, but not a lot. It's not going to be the major maker of the change, but how do you deal with that? So some of our premises are pretty clear. 
premises that I presented to you, that at the core, each of us has a deep and abiding desire to achieve and to contribute, not just in our everyday lives, but also at work. We come to work to be heroes. We want to master and excel. And in my paradigm and my thinking, it is the job of management or executives, senior leaders on every level, to help people do just that, master their work and excel, become heroes. This is slightly different than making the work excellent. This is saying, hey, we make people excellent, they're going to do excellent work. So this is not a denial of teams and their importance. This is instead, please, dear listeners, their foundation, the first step in creating high-performing teams that share a common purpose and work conscientiously and in concert to support corporate values, the corporate intent, and grow the business. It is because in the 1980s, I so often got blocked by these darn entitled Americans, U.S. citizens, who refused that I needed to step back and say, what's going on here? It would be too easy to just say it's wrong and pretend that I can make it right. I better work with what actually is. I better work, if, as it were, with Gemba, what it actually is. This is back in the 80s before Gemba got to us. Hmm? At first glance, the eye-driven approach seems to be counterintuitive, the opposite of team-based work culture. But in fact, eye-driven is a step in exactly that direction. In fact, it is, for me, an indispensable first step towards an aligned, unified work culture. So to make a hero's contribution, we must find, each of us must find the margin on the inside so we can contribute on the outside. And I've learned that that margin surfaces when people feel in control, some degree of control over their corner of the world, their work. But so many of us instead get overwhelmed by work's everyday struggles. Every day, you look, look, and you'll see the vast majority of that struggle swirls around one condition, missing information, missing answers, or answers, information that's incomplete, inaccurate, too late, or simply not there. So many questions, asked and unasked, missing And misinformation floods our day. As a result, instead of expanding and contributing to the enterprise and to excellence, we shrink and we focus instead on simply getting through the day, every day, the daily grind. Everything is a struggle over which we have no control. So it doesn't take us too long to discover that people will relax unstress a little bit, just enough, when they get control over the information they need when they need it. And they create visual devices so they can pull that information to them. That information becomes a part of the flow of their work. It becomes part of their value stream. It becomes of the part of the process that itself. So what's so interesting is that 
this is my advice to you. When you begin your journey to a visual workplace, leave people alone. Let them be themselves because they're going to reveal to you who they are. If you don't meddle with them, if you say, hey, look, you got to show up and I'd like you to get involved. But if you want to hang back a little bit, I'm going to ask you to help somebody else who's got a plan, who needs an extra pair of hands. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to make you do it. So just forget about it. I'm not going to make you do it. This is not going to be a battle of your of the wills. Just come, learn if you want to, look if you want to, think if you want to, show up, be here, and let's see what happens next. We're not exactly using peer pressure. In fact, we're taking the pressure off. And if you do that, you will learn so much because we say in my work, in, 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 in our training, in our approach, in, in our paradigm, we say, learn, use your first cycle of implementation to, for you to learn. Yes, you'll be teaching others and they'll learn, but most importantly, you learn. Now, you're going to learn about the methodology. You're going to learn what to do, what not to do, how to do a normalizing activity, how to create flow in the room, how to make clear content points, our particular, our material, uh, if you want it, in this form is fully narrated um, modules, narrated modules, and they're beautiful, beautiful, but they're self-standing. And so you don't have to master the content, but you do have to master the room. If you're a very good trainer, you already know how to do it. If you're a new trainer, there's a lot of learning. But let's just say you're a very good trainer. You've got that under your belt. What are you learning in the first cycle? We call it the A cycle. Well, now you get a chance to learn about people. You get a chance to know who's in the room and to know them unmeddled with by you, uninspired by you, plainly themselves. You're still going to be inspiring because you love visuality, it's one of the parts of being a trainer that is a kind of not even a requirement because it happens. People get it and they think, oh, man, I'm learning so much about my world. It's a curious world full of visual information sharing and 50% of my brain function is dedicated to finding and interpreting visual data and we're bringing all of this visual information into the workplace. It's just so interesting. I love this stuff. That's you. So you're occupied in your own learning and you're going to leave people alone and they're going to reveal who they are. And it doesn't take us too long, won't take you too long to discover that people are responding to the wonderful work that you're doing in usually one of three ways. They are embracing it, getting really excited. They are resisting it and grumbling. That's number two. Or three, they don't have an opinion about it one way or the other. They're neutral. They're just kind of watching. Three perspectives on the eye. The rowers, the first group, the wowsers, the grumblers, and the watchers. When push comes to shove, the only progressive course of action long-term, in my opinion, for a company to adopt as a premise of cultivating a work culture of alignment and spirit is simply not creating an elite. Just keep the people who want to row rowing. 
that elite might be your rowers, but the elite can also be your grumblers. You make a special case out of grumblers, you give them special attention. We're going to unfold this. I'm going to unfold this through something that I call the parable of the rowers, something that Ryuji Fukuda gave me in about a six-minute form uh, back in the 1980s. I think that was 84. I thought it was charming, and I've worked it and worked it and worked it, and now it's, you know, it's like a half an hour or an hour with repercussions that can go on and on. So the premise is people want to be heroes. I'm trying to, I'm thinking about, let me, let, let me just start this with the, a launch scenario and, 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 and add some hands and feet to this story so it has more usefulness to you and perhaps more impact. So let's look at a scenario that your company is two months into a visual conversion. The methodology has been vetted. You know visuality is going to help. You know you see people struggling with information deficits. Some of the foundational principles are beginning to take hold. You've gone through your smart placement. Function plus location equals flow. You, you're applying the 14 principles. It's going well. There are a number of people who are really getting it and liking it and embracing it and going for it. Maybe borders are already starting. Now we're in the fourth month, cropping up everywhere. Interesting functional borders. Workplace items are ID'd. They have addresses. People are beginning to do things differently. They're putting things back. We're not just talking 5S. We're talking about visual cells. Their eyesight, people's eyesight and insight is beginning to develop. And a small group of people seem very motivated. In my current my current uh, big implementation, I name Pedro. I also name, oh, from the other plant, my goodness, Beto and, um, oh, damn, what's short name, darn his name. I can see his face in front of me. But anyway, Moro, Jose Luis, Armando. Oh, cheapers if I don't say these names. Daniel. Wonderful, wonderful people. And so many others. I'm sorry. I should have made the list of their names so I could name all 25 of them, 30 of them, 50 of them. This, a group of people are very motivated. From the beginning, enthusiastic, imaginative, full of energy, full of ideas. They're acting as if making their work areas more visual is fairy dust. This makes my day. They get so excited about finding exactly the right location, smart placement, for the coils. It's the perfect place they croon. And in their spare time, and somehow they find plenty of it, they work on new visual solutions and mini systems. John from the machine shop, I'm in manufacturing now, is figuring out a scrap separation system. Debbie from supplier development is catching the magic, and she's working with Cindy, and they're putting together a display that will help the cell and their de- her department keep stockouts to a minimum. And Bill, in assembly, has come up with what he calls the ultimate workbench. They seem to eat, drink, and breathe visuality. When asked why, they'll give each other some variation of, oh, it's the answer to my prayers. Oh, my goodness. Do you know what this was like before? 
I was struggling all the time. This is the answer to my prayers. Finally, you're doing something for me, they'll say to management. Finally, you're doing something for me. (laughs) Now I come to work and it makes sense. But others are not so involved. They're not so convinced. Some are busy with other improvement efforts. They couldn't find time, they say. I don't have time to do something new. Others are waiting on the sidelines. Mostly they watch. They watch Bill, John, Debbie, Cindy bring order out of chaos. And they barely blink an eye. They do not mind visuality. It's no skin off of my back is a frequent comment from this group. And in in some sense, in some sense, they even like the changes. I mean, they're not complaining The packing mini system that Bill did put an end to hunting, hunting for scissors and tapes and packing materials. Yeah, they like the changes. They just don't want to do anything themselves. Maybe someday, but not now. They're watching. What they're actually doing is waiting. They're waiting to see if this visual thing will last. Waiting to see if management keeps up their end of the bargain, if they do their due waiting to see if Bill and John and Debbie get clobbered for their good efforts. In other words, they're waiting to see if the past is going to repeat itself again. And until that is cleared up, they are not going to take the risk. They're waiting and watching. They're particularly watching that other group of people, those people who are a breed of part those people who simply don't have anything good to say about anything else, anytime, least of all this new kind of visual thing. They may be managers. I bet you were thinking operators. No, they may be managers. Grumpy, grumpy managers. Cynical, maybe. They may be associates. In this particular company that I'm describing, one where it's a launch scenario or three or four months in, there's a little of both. They list their list of worries and complaints and misgivings is long and familiar. John and Debbie and Bill and Cindy, the planner, are convinced that visuality is vital to them, their departments, their company, their lives. They feel upset that not everyone is on board. Why don't they join in? What's the problem? This is good stuff. Why is there a pushback? Why are they resisting? Hmm? And you feel, hey, you're the trainer. That's a perfectly good question. Why am I not why am I standing for this? This is good stuff. It's happened. It's worked elsewhere. And you know what? It's supposed to be it's supposed to create a spirited and engaged workforce, well, so where, is it, where are they spirited or engaged? So if this is any of the kind of conversation that has gone on in your head about a change, or if you've been through visual, I probably know you, if you've been through visual and you've had these thoughts, if you've done a visual conversion, there are very, very, very few. In fact, we don't know of any other company on the planet that does visual conversions. They do a little bit of point solutions. They'll help you with your andons, your labels and lines. They'll do some kind of Kanban pull system. They have these point solutions. 
But are you doing a visual conversion? You're one of our clients, or you have been. (laughs) That's when we encounter the culture. It doesn't have to be a barrier, and it doesn't have to change. So first thing, as we move towards this parable of the rowers that I want to share with you today, so that you kind of get how these things work out and what the pitfalls are and what the glory is, let's just look at resistance and inertia. And let me just say, they are not the change, the, the, the same. They are not interchangeable. If they were the same, we would treat them the same. But if we treat them the same, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. So, resistance. Well, let me just say more broadly. I won't go into resistance. I'll do inertia first. When we believe strongly in something and come to believe that it could be the answer that our department, our company, or the world is waiting for, our eyesight can get a little cloudy. Our tendency is to label as resistance everything and everybody that does not agree with us and embrace our marvelous idea. We see it as a lack of cooperation, not a preference. And you know, without a doubt, some of it is resistance. But there's another part, a larger part, that is the result of inertia. Let's be precise. And let's define the difference between the two. The dictionary defines inertia as the tendency of a body at rest to remain at rest, or if in motion to stay in motion in a straight line, unless and until it is acted upon by an external force. That's classic physics. That's the physical world, I should say. In terms of people, resistance may be interpreted as the decision to actively oppose or hinder, but inertia occurs when people are already, as I mentioned before, involved in ongoing work, too busy. They keep moving in that direction. Hmm? With inertia, people will keep doing the thing they are currently doing until and unless something comes along that causes them to change and that gets them to shift. They are not resistant. They are simply continuing. They are not resisting. They are simply continuing. Inertia applies to the tendency of a body as well to remain at rest, if it is at rest, and you get a taste of that. When people say to you, they don't want to be bothered. We make a mistake to call them lazy or sluggish or difficult. Take them at their word. They're not resisting you. They just don't want to be bothered. Not right now. They're busy. Busy doing what? (laughs) Busy maintaining their current state of non-motion. Non-moving. So recognize inertia for what it is and realize that it can be harnessed in favor of your deployment, your conversion, your implementation, but not yet and not directly. Okay, (laughs) the trick is to help people shift off zero, off stillness, rest, non-moving, and begin to move in the direction, in the direction of the change, and then let the force of inertia start working in favor of maintaining that motion. The shift that we're talking about, for example, 
is not a lifelong commitment to visuality. It is simply an agreement to take a first small step. And the emphasis is on small, the need to shift, the need to shift, the inertia. And the improvement time policy that I spoke about several months ago that I, I think that was might have been in March, the improvement time policy is a way to do that, to notice when people are using a little bit of their time or not. It's not punitive. You notice in order to understand. You notice in order to continue your diagnosis. You notice in order to learn about what's going on on the inside with these little markers. And you're going to learn about resistance as well. That's very definite. Any force that opposes or retards movement. In medicine, the term resistance, by the way, is very positive. It's the ability of a body to ward off disease. It's a part of our immune system, so it's good. And electricity, it's also good. It's the property that causes heat to be generated. When an electrical current passes through the object, the, there must be resistance. You don't get electricity. And my goodness, in air flight, resistance refers to the upward p- pushing force that is, in, that is the air, the wind, on the exposed surface of the airplane wing. It's good. We want that resistance when we're flying. That is, that is flight. So resistance can fight disease, transform electricity into heat, and keep airplanes in the air. It's not all that bad. It's natural and beneficial. And there's another kind of resistance. The resistance that when it opens its mouth, you are looking at no right in the throat. There are countless ways to say it, but it still knows. It's still, I should say, it's still no. I got a little list here. Here is, so here's some sounds of inertia. We're doing just fine as we are. Uh, We tried that before. Quality is more important. Getting stuff out the door is more important. None of this is resistance. This is inertia. Uh, We don't have time to improve. We We barely have time to meet production. Or here's another one. We are already doing all we can. Okay, so here's what no sounds like. It's slightly mass, but you'll hear the no. We can't justify it financially. It's not aligned with our current corporate measures. We don't have the money. We don't have the time. We don't have the people. We have other more pressing problems. It's just a scheme to squeeze more production out of employees. Oh, employees will take over. Management will lose control. Or we're too big. Or we're too small. Or we're a job shop. Or we're process industry. Or how about this for cultural? No, it doesn't fit the way we do things. We don't see anyone else doing it. Who else is doing this? We have too many products. Our product is too complex. Our product is too simple. Our employees don't care. (laughs) Or when you talk about visuality or 5S, it's this is a factory, not a hospital. (laughs) We're supposed to walk on these floors, not eat on them. They didn't hire me, you, us, to sweep floors, put down tape, make signs. (laughs) Uh, Aren't there more more important improvement ideas, improvements that we can make? 
And anyway, our company looks a hot heck of a lot better than any other company in this city. <laughs> Pretty deadly, wouldn't you say? <laughs> oh, boy. So when you want this kind of cultural and physical change to take place, you got to what can we reasonably expect from people? Will they get on board? If so, when? So this parable, this parable goes like this, and I think that it holds answers. This is what Fukuda gave me in 1982-83, and uh, I don't know if he writes about it in his book, Managerial Engineering. I don't think so. He used to talk about it when he was talking to companies. And anyway, it's very, it was very, it's very rich in wisdom and meaning. And I think it's useful. <laughs> I got the bones from him. And then, as is my tendency and my pleasure, I made big stuff out of it. Okay, so there you are, you and your company. I'm going to describe this. It's a parable. You and your company are embarking on a great journey. You have decided to leave the land of waste, where so much time is spent searching and waiting and wandering and struggling, and head out for a new world, where clarity and self-order reign, and the workforce is spirited and involved, and profits are better than you ever imagined. Your destination is a visual workplace, a workplace that speaks. To get there, you have to cross a great ocean, the ocean of continuous systematic improvement. You have a boat, and that boat is called the SS Visual Workplace. You can't get across that ocean without a boat, a.k.a. a methodology. And you are on that boat with your core team of employees, Pedro, Luis, Liz, Beto, Danny, people like yourself. Each of you has a set of oars in your hand, and together you are rowing vigorously towards that distant shore. Your cheeks are red, your eyes are sparkling, you're breathing deeply, and often you are the rowers. You are the rowers, and you represent 25% of the workforce at the very most. At the very most. And there are others on the boat with you, a group larger than you, you and your fellow rowers. And they are watching. They are watching you row. They are called the watchers. And for the purposes of this discussion, let's say that there are four rowers in the boat, representing 25% of the workforce, just think like that. And there are eight watchers. So, You and three other rowers make up 25% of the workforce, and the eight watchers make up how much? If four is 25, then how many is 50? How many is, oh, I'm sorry, I just gave it away. (laughs) I'm sorry, how many are eight? Yes, you are right. 50%, 50% of the people are watching. But wait a minute, 50% and 25%. Do not 100% make. We have only 75% of the workforce on the boat. Where's the other 25%? Where are they? Oh, my gosh. Where are they? <gasps> Wait a minute. There they are. Some of them are on the distant shore, the one you just left. They're sunning themselves in the debris, the frightful land of waste that you're leaving, grumbling 
that they've been abandoned. Well, wait a minute. Others are in the water. And they're swimming towards us. They're grumbling and they've got something nasty in their hands. What's that, a harpoon? They're ready to do direct damage to your effort. (laughs) Better do something quick. But what? (laughs) But what? That's the seminal question. Well, I'll tell you what not to do. Well, let me put it another way. This is what normally happens. The watchers are on the, the the rowers are on the boat and they notice that they're missing some people and they see these people are grumbling. So maybe they're not coming at you with a harpoon because you'd fire them, of course, if they were going to do damage, do something unsafe. Of course you would. You can't do that. But they are very grumpy. And you know what? <laughs> these grumblers are good at what they do. You know, in fact, they even enjoy themselves. When you run up against a grumbler, you inevitably want, as your next move, to try to get them to stop grumbling, especially if you're a rower. Your next move is to get them to just calm down and, 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 and smell the roses and be part of, be part of the yes. Hmm? And that's where we make our first mistake. You may, for example, with the other rowers, decide you want to find out what's making them so darn unhappy. You schedule a one-on-one appointment, each of the four rowers, with one of the grumblers to talk things out. And you talk things out. And you're still in the dark, or even worse, they're beginning to make sense to you. (laughs) They got good reason to grumble. (laughs) Did you hear what happened last month? (laughs) They begin to co-opt you. (laughs) You have another meeting with the rowers, and what are we going to do about this? How can we help them? They're so miserable, and visuality is so wonderful. What are we going to do, and what's going on while this conversation is happening, while you're visiting with the grumblers? What else is going on on your little boat? The watchers are watching. The watchers are watching and they're saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, there it is. Mm-hmm, I told you they're doing it again. Yeah, look at them. Look at them caring about the grumblers. Grumblers aren't even on the boat. We're on the boat. They don't even notice us. They're, they're trying to help those grumblers. They're not going to get anywhere with those grumblers because those grumblers will eat them alive. And the watchers look at each other and say, ah, oh, it's happening again. This isn't going anywhere, anywhere I want to be. The people who want this change are doing it the wrong way again. They know they've seen it. They've been around much longer, if you're a manager, than you have. They live locally. They didn't move to town. They grew up in town. <laughs> and they say, you know what? <laughs> One, one, one watcher turns to the other and say, hey, Marianne, you want to go first or shall I? And Marianne says, you go first, Gwen. Okay. So <laughs> Gwendolyn, me, moi, I go to the edge of the boat. I stand on the ledge and I do this magnificent swan dive. I'm in the water. I dove in. <laughs> Marianne comes next. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then George, and wait a minute, there's one of the rowers just stood up and is heading for the edge of the boat <laughs> and jumps off <laughs> and jumps off into the water. And then another rower and another rower and then the last watcher. <laughs> and then the last rower. We're out of here. <laughs> the grumblers have won. What did we do wrong? The grumblers have won. The boat is empty. It's not going anywhere. The deployment, the deployment has been closed down. Ain't going to work. People aren't ready. They're lazy. They're difficult. They're not interested. We can't make it happen. We knew the problem was our work culture, and it rose up and bit us. We can't do this without them. I don't know. We've got to figure out something else. Let's look for another methodology. No, <laughs> let's not. Let's rewind and talk about another way. What, may I say, you did wrong? What we did wrong. I was there with you. I was the first one off of the boat. Splash. Hmm? What did we do wrong? What we did wrong is we let the, this dark energy, this negative energy, this uh, very detailed complaint capture us. We got co-opted. It happens all the time. Energy is attention. Attention is the currency of the realm. Hawthorne in the 1930s did this experiment on the power of energy that gave us a body of evidence strengthened by the findings of hundreds of other studies that followed that what we pay attention to grows. Heisenberg did the same thing, Werner Heisenberg. He wrote about this in his research on molecules and atomic structure. Pay attention to something and that which is observed will respond. Hmm? We made a big mistake, big mistake. Your next move, when, when you're on the boat and the watchers have consented to join you on that boat, you're in a lucky, lucky place. And your next ro- move is very simple. You keep rowing. If you're management, you keep the rowers rowing and you row yourself. You walk the talk and talk the walk. Attempting to get grumblers to change their mind and get on board is not the way to go. Watchers watch. That is what they do at the start of everything. They watch. They watch the rowers row. They watch the grumblers grumble. And they also watch to see what the rowers decide to do, or people like you, management, about the grumbling. They watch to see what people pay attention to. Watchers know about attention. They know about energy. That is one of the reasons why they do so much watching. It is their way of conserving their own. When rowers pay attention, put their attention on the grumblers, and I'm talking about management who are lead rowers, the watchers know that the rowers are hoping to get the grumblers to change their minds and hearts and get on board. The watchers also know from years of watching that grumblers are capable, as I said before, of eating up all an energy, all and any energy that comes their way. They're like black holes in the universe. Grumblers suck everyone dry. Rowers get more and more exhausted and disheartened, and seeing their well-intended efforts are not paying off, they become filled, have you had this, 
with self-doubt. Have you had this? And anxiety. They have misgivings about where they're going and how. They begin to doubt their vision. And when the watchers see this, they see the implementation is going down the road. I'm sorry, going down the tubes and do the only thing that makes sense to them. They jump ship. They join the grumblers in the water nearly in the same moment. Watchers see it and bail. They know this this scenario very well. Nearly in the same moment, the rest go. The grumblers have won. Attention is energy. What it rests upon grows. It is a powerful force. Grumblers are past masters. You have to outsmart them. It's the power of choice. The rowers in our parable ended up paying more attention to the grumbling than to their own rowing, and the tide began to turn against them. The watchers were already on the boat but overlooked. Do you see? The pivotal issue in this parable and in your efforts, and I know many who are listening, many of you already know this, is to, in in implementing visuality, is the right of the individual to choose. It is the act of that choosing that pulls That is the pull in the pull system we call improvement, in the pull system we call workplace visuality. The power of choice can work for or against your implementation. In the early stages of of visual conversion, information gets used only if an employee chooses to pull it into place through a visual device. So you keep the rowers rowing. Rowers have two main jobs. Influence positive direction by doing their own work and do their own work. Do your own work and that's the way you influence positive direction. And pay attention to the people who are watching. And what happens, a different way for this to end is as the rowers are rowing to the distant shore, keeping their eyes fixed on the receding shoreline and rowing towards the new tomorrow, their oar strokes are strong and steady. The the boat pulls away and they keep rowing. And as they do, the watches are captivated by the calm intent of the rowers who stay lighthearted even as the sweat pours down their brows and into their blinking eyes. A watcher shifts around a little bit, puts on a crooked smile, and after a few moments picks up an oar, one and starts clumsily at first to row, and then maybe picks up another. And then someone else joins in, and soon the boat slips into a tailwind, and the crew raises the mast and the sail, and the sail puffs and fills. And the grumblers, the grumblers are barely visible on the receding shore. But wait a minute. Let's send a dinghy back to see if somebody wants to join us. It comes back full. You just remember, what you give your attention to grows. It's a universal law, and it can work for or against your implementation. So you can expect, realistically, that some people will get on board as soon as the initiative is announced. They'll get this. They'll instinctively grasp the importance of seeing information, of pulling information. You put your rowers in place, 25% mark, Maybe you'll have that at the beginning. Maybe you'll have 15. Don't start if you don't have 10, 10%. And you move on like that. So that's what you might encounter in terms of passionate 
commitment, but also inertia and passionate resistance. And people are worth the pause. Go easy. Use that first cycle as a diagnostic. People are worth the pause. A small period of time when they are truly allowed, even encouraged to be themselves with no fear of penalty. They are shown a new way and then allowed that little bit of extra time to find the path or not. We're not going to fire them if they don't. If they do something destructive, send them to HR, of course. But we want to discover a new dimension of the eye, of the will. Allow people to be authentically themselves. Active, passive, cooperative, resistive, enthusiastic, grumpy, aggressive, indifferent. If the individual is simply met where he or she is and accepted, the chances of change increase whether those changes are triggered by self-reflection or outside feedback. The workplace is not a therapist's couch. It is also not populated by perfect beings. Cultures in transition have many lessons to learn and huge treasures to unearth. I'd like you to think about those things. We have one more show in this series. We'll talk about how supervisors and management can help in this transition. I had a wonderful time with you today. Thank you so much for listening. I went over a little bit, so I have to kind of rush to the end. I was going to read you a poem. Oh, no. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak. We'll be right back.